Uh, hello, everybody. I stand up and leave the room. It's great. Uh, welcome to the uh, final Straff Center uh, lunchtime talk of the year. I'm very pleased that you came. Of the academic year, there will be many more within uh, 2014. But uh, very glad uh, to have you here, and very glad to have my friend TV Paul here. Um, I think this is going to be a really fascinating talk. TV is uh, uh, the McGill professor at McGill University. Uh, I think they might have named the university for him. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but it's certainly a reflection of, of how important and influential TV is. He uh, um, uh, still is, right? But over the last um, you know, 20 some years, we probably won't count exactly that uh, he's been uh, a leading author in international security and uh, uh, international politics, um, thinking some really uh, creative and, and uh, influential uh, thoughts about nuclear weapons, about South Asia, about deterrence, a host of, of issues where he's been a really important scholar and we're privileged to have him come here today to talk to us about his new book, which I'm supposed to show, uh, The Warrior State, Pakistan and the Contemporary World. Um, uh, Pakistan as a topic is very uh, uh, sadly perennial chestnuts of things that we don't understand well enough that could really ruin not just our day but our week or our year, right? Like understanding from an international security perspective how Pakistan fits in and how the trajectory of Pakistan is one of the most important things that we could try to understand. I'm really glad TV is here to, to help explain this to us. Um, uh, in the write-up of the book, uh, he presents, um, which I'm sure he's going to talk about, so I don't want to steal his thunder, some really interesting puzzles about Pakistan and how it's on very much its own trajectory uh, that tells us something about the future of the world today. Um, after the talk, uh, TV will actually be signing copies of this book just out there, and um, hopefully this talk will entice you uh, to want to know more. And I want to know more right now, so TV, take it away. Thank you, Eugene. Of course. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, largely because uh, the school is one of the most distinguished schools in terms of uh, its contribution to international uh, studies, security studies. And Eugene was a young scholar at Harvard University as a postdoctoral fellow when I met him some maybe 12 years ago. And, and he was uh, one of the most dynamic young fellows. And it was a pleasure to interact with him. And then Frank was there too. We met a lot of very interesting people. And we still uh, connect to each other at various places. It's, it's a what great thing about going to Harvard. You never lose your friends there. Now, um, I also thank the center for inviting me. And um, Eugene and uh, Jessica did a lot of work for this. And the director, Chesney, I'm going to meet also. I appreciate your willingness to have me here today. I start off by looking at the question why Pakistan is an important country. It is a pivotal state of South Asia. It's 185 million people, sixth largest in the world. 300 million it's going to become by 2050, and that's the fourth largest country in the world. Peace between Pakistan and its neighbors, and especially India and Afghanistan, and peace within Pakistan 
are crucial for not only for regional security, but for global security. Many works on Pakistan, as some of them are selling like uh, mega deals, as you probably watched the New York Times bestsellers, are uh, selling very well by journalists that uh, talk about, describe what's going on in Pakistan and its very tumultuous relationship with the United States. Few of them explain it. And social scientists have ignored this country, to my surprise, when I started working on it. Hardly any work that explains why Pakistan is the way it is. And journalists and think tanks have made a killer on uh, this sort of uh, works. We really need more social science works. My effort is to explain Pakistan's insecurity predicament using ideas developed in social sciences, especially historical sociology, international relations, and comparative politics, and military history, as well as security studies. Let me make a disclaimer here. I'm not here to blame Pakistan or to put in a bad light. I'm not taking sides on the India-Pakistan conflict. My objective is to observe this particular puzzle that I'm very much interested in. Why Pakistan has not become a strong, secure state after so much attention given to military and military security. And so by giving a kind of diagnosis, I hope policymakers in both Pakistan and the United States take some cues to see what is needed to change this very important country's trajectory. Uh, so in a, in a way, I am, I think, qualified to get extent, partly because of my training in international relations, comparative politics, South Asia, military history, etc. Whereas in many people who write on Pakistan tend to have only one aspect of that particular uh, complex country's trajectory. I start off in the book by looking at a big picture of <coughs> Pakistan within the context of the European experience. There is an influential school of thought in comparative historical <coughs> sociology that war and war preparation have made states stronger. And the formation of nation states in Europe, the strengthening of them, and the cohesiveness of these states occurred through the process of war and war making. Charles Tilly sums it up so nicely. War made the state, and state made war. It was through a multi-state process, elimination of external rivals, suppression or pacification of internal enemies, extraction of sufficient resources through increasing taxation, and strengthening states made social pacts with powerful social groups to confer them legitimacy. That doesn't mean that all European states became strong as a result of war making, and some really collapsed. And if you look at the map of Europe from, let's say, 1502 to, 20, uh, to 2014, you'll see different shapes and contours uh, appear. Some states destroyed, some states were catalyzed by revolution, others uh, diminished their state capacity, and some others had fiscal collapse. Examples are numerous. Byzantium, Burgundy, Austria, Hungary, and the Soviet Union are some fascinating examples and the last two were great powers. Yet war and war preparation have been the source of, major source of state formation, state strengthening in the European context. Now the question is whether this uh, is applied, whether this is applicable to developing countries. And uh, a cursory look at the developing world suggests that this process has not been uniform, has not done all that good for the developing world. 
Studies on the developing world by uh, non-scholars like Jeffrey Hurst from Africa uh, argues that um, um, low population centers, densities, and abundant vacant land made uh, rulers in Africa, for instance, focus on their capital cities and urban centers, leaving their hinterland underdeveloped. Miguel Centeno, a Latin Americanist, argues that uh, uh, the incapacity of Latin American states to wage big wars forced them to engage in what they call civil wars and political violence. I find two big problems here. One is what you call a circularity problem, uh, implying that original weakness did not allow the states to be, wage big wars, which in turn caused them to remain weak. And then I find a problem of assumed inevitability of a positive correlation between war and state strength without giving allowance to war's ruinous consequences, even for winners. France was a winner of World War I. It exhausted itself. United Kingdom, Great Britain, was a winner of World War II. It, in fact, declined substantially at the end of war. Soviet Union drove its economy into the ground to keep its military preparations. And unfortunately, it is retreating to the same pattern today under Mr. Putin. State building does no longer result from a purely coercive capacity, but integrity power of the state to draw the, uh, the ability <coughs> to draw different groups of society and invest in them. National security states that made progress, that made successful transition, are those states that simultaneously pursued what you call a developmental state approach. And this is what explains the big difference between Pakistan and the other countries that I, I compare, such as uh, South Korea and Taiwan. Pakistan's trajectory is a fascinating one uh, for a lot of reasons. 66 years after coming into being, after ready partition, that saw migration of population on both sides, and the genocides like violence caused by both uh, India, uh, Hindus and Muslims, and six, the state was absent uh, very much uh, in that process of maintaining peace and order. The retreating British also did not have much to do uh, to control the violence. Pakistan, ever since it was born, had been in a conflict with India, and it is uh, uh, interesting to see this rivalry is one that is uh, to great extent driving Pakistan to where it is in terms of uh, its relationship in this South Asian dynamics. But it has also been trying to maintain what they call a strategic parity with this larger neighbor through arms buildup, alignment with great powers, acquisition of nuclear weapons, and offering a home base for transnational non-state actor. I will go into detail later why uh, this whole strategic parity uh, and why it is persisting in the Pakistani elite's calculations. And the military ruled Pakistan for over half of its existence, and the civilian governments, um, even though today there's a civilian government, I call it a hybrid system. The military has what you call the veto over major decisions concerning national security, concerning foreign policy, including nuclear weapons management. And this gives the military quite a bit of control over Pakistan's policies. First, let me present some grim statistics. 
The 2013 Human Development Report puts Pakistan in the 146th rank among 186 countries on indicators such as life expectancy, years of schooling, per capita income, etc. It appears in almost all indexes produced by the foreign policy magazine on the so-called state uh, fail-state <coughs> index, uh, top 10 or between 9 to 15. <coughs> and the central leadership today has little control over many parts of Pakistan, especially northwestern areas, where the extremist groups are fighting against the state. What is noticeable is also the increasing sectarian killing of, in Pakistan, uh, especially toward minority Muslims, such as Shias. Something like 40,000 civilians were killed by Taliban between 2012-2013 uh, alone. 2014 does not look good at all, as the killings have increased, and the bombings now just resumed yesterday by the Pakistani army of the Taliban, the Pakistani Taliban strongholds. For my presentation, the, one of the most interesting statistics is that Pakistan stood at 124th among 144 countries in the Global Competitiveness Index. It is one of the least globalized countries in terms of economic dimensions of trade and investment. But Pakistan has also got 110 or so nuclear weapons and emerging as the fourth largest nuclear weapon state rather rapidly. Not all is in bad condition. There are some silver linings. It has made a tremendous uh, peace, uh, peaceful transition from a military, uh, from a one democratic regime to the other that held elections, uh, considered as a reasonably decent one. And uh, the current prime minister is indeed making some efforts to achieve peace and economic prosperity. They are talking about opening up more trade with India and uh, military is at least remaining in the barracks. Although just last week alone, there was a quite a bit of tension uh, regarding the trial of uh, ex-military chief and president, General Musharraf. The military is not too happy with that. There is some emphasis on youth training, emphasis on privatization. The European Union had a deal to engage a kind of free trade agreement with them. And the United States, for the first time, included trade in the strategic dialogue with Pakistan. This is actually one of my biggest criticisms of US policy, ignoring trade and economic development <coughs> in this relationship. And um, indeed, there is a civil society slowly emerging in Pakistan under considerable stress and strain. To be a journalist in Pakistan is the hardest thing today. But some of them are trying hard to expose and write uh, very daringly. One of them got just uh, shot this last week, a very prominent television broadcaster. Peace with India is again a very difficult subject to talk about with respect to changing dynamics. In India, there is a Hindu fundamentalist government is likely to come into being, although they, that doesn't mean that that government may not pursue peace. And um, the biggest challenge is what is going to happen to Afghanistan after the US withdraws? Will Afghanistan fall into Taliban? Will Pakistan continue to play the so-called double games and support the Taliban uh, against uh, the current uh, regime or the successor regime? All these are highly unpredictable, and the spoilers of peace in South Asia are many. It doesn't have to be state or state agencies. 
it can be non-state actors, sometimes with the support of state or state agencies. My interest in this book is to explain two big questions. Why does Pakistan remain a weak state despite intense focus on national security for such a long period of time? The second question is, why has it pursued policies that have not brought long-term security or prosperity? If you are the head of a corporation and you don't make any profit for a period of time, you need to change your grand strategy. If you don't change, your corporation will collapse and go out of business. Countries, unfortunately, don't. It takes a long time for countries to get bankrupt and become non-existent. That's a big challenge with nation states because international protection, legal protection, and sovereignty, etc., <coughs> help countries to stay on. Now, I'm trying to understand the big question with some big answers. I argue that there are two key sources for this particular outcome that we see in Pakistan. One is the peculiar geostrategic circumstances, that is called the structural factors, and the other, what you call agency factors, the particular ideas that the Pakistani elite hold. And these ideas I call are based on hyper-realpolitik. <coughs> and they influence each other and often create a condition that is very hard to get out of it. I am kind of eclectic in my approach here. I do not want to argue that Pakistan did not face conflicts, threats. I'm not arguing that it's all Pakistan's fault. I'm not arguing Kashmir conflict did not matter. I'm not arguing India's behavior did not matter. But one thing I'm arguing, countries facing rivalries of this nature and territorial disputes have faced it differently. And that's where elites' ideas and strategies matter. How do you respond to your environment? And so I'm trying to bring a connection between agency and structure. One of my key arguments in this book is what I call a geostrategic curse. Pakistan has been simultaneously blessed and cursed with the geostrategic importance for great powers due to its location and the willingness of its elite to participate in great power competition. During the Cold War, Pakistan was a frontline ally of the United States. <coughs> Beginning in mid-1950s, it provided base facilities for spying operations. You may recall the U-2 um, spy going from Peshawar and getting shot down in the Soviet Union. In the 1980s, it once again becomes the biggest conduit for supply of weapons and funds to Afghan resistance against the Soviet occupation. Since 2011, 2001, key ally in the war in Afghanistan. In between, it is also a key ally of China, a key ally of, uh, uh, of Saudi Arabia, and a whole host of countries that basically had a military relationship, aid relationship with Pakistan. Participation in geopolitical competition brought billions of dollars and modern weapons to Pakistan. European internal extraction or East Asian examples of internal innovation and external trade have been relatively absent in the Pakistani case, except for a brief period during Ayub Khan's era in the 1950s, uh, late 50s and late uh, 60s. The military elite became a key player in the economic and political system, and they were not ready to undertake major reforms. 
This is similar to what you call resource curse or foreign aid curse, two very deeply contested and, and uh, elaborated concepts in comparative development and sociology. It has been argued that a country receives too much foreign aid, it has a negative impact on its democratic development, on its economic development, etc. And I use that kind of problems, and it fits quite nicely with respect to Pakistan. It creates a lot of pathologies, authoritarianism, it hinders the development of strong and independent middle class, organized labor, that can push for democracy, and it can undermine stability necessary for democracy. There is a powerful literature on this. Uh, one of the, that strand of literature is called on Owen Curse, which I encourage people who want to know more about it. So in this case, realizing that it is extremely valuable for powerful allies, state elite does not need to make any long-term investments or institutional reform because they can survive without that kind of change. They can take advantage of this external assistance they receive. Pakistan's challenge in this regard is very clear in the tax collection capacity of the Pakistani state. It is one of the lowest tax collecting states in the world. According to New York Times report in July 2010, out of more than 170 million Pakistanis, less than 2% pay income tax, making revenues from taxes among the lowest in the world, a notch below Sierra Leone as the ratio of tax to gross domestic product. Something like 10 million Pakistanis should be paying income tax, far more than 2.5 million are registered. I recently read that but a statement by the former head of Pakistan State Bank that this number has increased, decreased. Right now, something like 0.7% of the population pay any income tax. Of course, they collect uh, uh, customs and uh, sales tax. So even with all that, uh, the total tax collection is less than 9% of the GDP. Now, as percentage of GDP, the foreign aid is not that big, but as a percentage of the governmental revenues, it is huge. And that's where the challenge here, in, in many sense. Pakistan also receives substantial foreign aid, foreign remittances through Pakistanis working abroad. Uh, in 2013 alone, 14 million. Now this can be a curse as well as a blessing. In the short run it is a blessing, of course, people who uh, depend on it is very important. But if the money doesn't go into productive sectors, uh, then it can hurt a country, uh, as is evident in this case, in the long run. Between 1960 and 2012, Pakistan received something like $73.1 billion from bilateral multilateral sources. U.S. has been uh, made a part of that um, suppliers. Then you have Japan, France, UK, Germany, International Development Association, World Bank, IMF, uh, critical players. And they do take cues from U.S. policies. IMF just gave them something like $6.7 billion to just tide over the crisis. Uh, U.S. 1.6, Saudi Arabia 1.7, and undisclosed amount from different countries, including China. Now, between 20, uh, 2002 and 2010, Pakistan received more than $2 billion per year on average from the United States. So the military in this process has become a key economic player of Pakistan. Military officers are given land grants and have emerged as a major land-owning class. 
They are present in all businesses of Pakistan. And I encourage you to read a book by Aisha Sitika, a Pakistani scholar, called The Military Inc. or Military Incorporated, where she shows that the foundations and the corporations and all Pakistani military have been engaged in, uh, have created a lot of interest for the corporatist kind of interest for them. And it's very hard to shake that interest. And the country has not had land reforms. So in other words, it's a bit like Wilhelmine, Germany, in a very poor country. So the military is a beneficiary in its own ways, but it needs to change its strategies. Uh, transformation is needed in, in the way it looks at uh, security, development, whatnot, in its own role in society. But I'm not satisfied with this sort of a structural argument. I want to go deeper into what ideas this military hold. And I think that's very important for us to understand whether they carry certain ideas, shared beliefs that provide them the causal roadmaps that affect their strategies, then they create institutions and that shape their agendas or outcomes. <coughs> and these ideas can put blinders on people, reducing the number of alternatives they would look into. And ideas are very important here. I'm not a constructivist, but I am willing to look at ideas and strategies lot more deeply than realists indeed look into. We need to look at what kind of strategies elite pursues. What kind of ideas are behind them? And why some ideas get embedded in institutional structures? Why do they get so much rigidity? Why is that ideas are hard to shake? And this is not just applying to Pakistan alone, but a lot of countries, almost every in the world, elite tend to have ideas. Let me sort of sum up summary of uh, the kind of ideas the Pakistani elite hold. And that's very important to look at. I argue that the Pakistani elite has been drawn by a traditional national security state idea of the realist Hobbesian worldview. This worldview is characterized by the need for a strong national security state built around military might. It's a self-help system. Relative gains matter here. National security and territorial integrity or territorial security acquire a prior, uh, prior role to everything else. Trade and economic welfare are secondary only to help the national security state. Extreme conflict is the nature of interstate politics and the preservation of the state from predatory enemies is the primary function of the state. So in other words, international politics is zero-sum. There's no room for major uh, compromises, rivalries exist, and so the Lokian or Kantian ideas don't have much room here. I'm relying in, on a book by Stephen Coyne. The book is called The Idea of Pakistan, where he sums up several uh, of the ideas, the military elite, which he calls a 500 odd decision-making unit that they tend to change as years go by, but they tend to have operational codes and they haven't undergone major changes over the years. And that is one of the challenge here. The number one assumption or, or idea here, armed forces are the model for Pakistani society as a whole. They are seen as selfless, disciplined, obedient, and competent. Deep-rooted social reforms, including land reforms, universal <coughs> literacy are too risky for a state facing unstable enemies from outside a dangerous enemies from outside and unstable forces from inside. 
many ideas are driven are drawn from British colonial period. A conflict with India is natural, and to avoid defeat, they need to achieve what they call strategic parity. This parity is achievable despite the fact that the differential of power in material terms is 1 to 7, 1 to 6, 1 to 8, uh, etc. Many, many levels. You'll notice that the material capabilities have been changing in India's favor as an economy growing uh, much more rapidly than Pakistan, at least in the past few past decade or decade and a half. Now, people who discuss strategic parity in pure military terms is actually missing a lot out of it. They are missing because it is not just a military competition. It is not even a religious competition as some literature tends to give. I call it a civilizational competition. What do I mean by that? The desire for parity has deep roots in South Asia's history. It can be traced to the demand for a separate Muslim homeland to regain the lost power of the Muslim minority and the conceptual inheritance of the Mughal Empire. This is where, unless you know the history of South Asia, it's very hard to figure out what I'm talking about. In the sense that this competition is for status. Social identity theory has underlined uh, why people and societies behave certain ways or expect certain ways because they have status expectations. You may not recall, remember that, some of you who know South Asian history know, for over a thousand years, South Asia was controlled by Muslim rulers. And the last one was the Mughal Empire, the mighty Mughal Empire in many sense, a very highly civilized empire. If you go to India and Pakistan, you'll find the their contributions in art and architecture, literature, philosophy, ideas, are very superior in many sense, in fact, superior to today's ideas about eclectic uh, religious ideas, tolerance, etc. Except for the last big one that Aurangzeb put it, did a lot of harm to them. The Mughals came from today's Uzbekistan, and it is interesting to look at that they became part of South Asia. They were still not looked upon as foreigners whereas the British are, unfortunately, in terms of, because they became part of the South Asian milieu, integrated, adopted techniques and ideas, and even created eclectic ideas, and spread Sufism and other concepts into the, into the region. What was the big problem that created for the Muslim community? The partition of India is occurring in a context that people again forget, 1857, the British were, uh, East India Company had several uh, pockets of control over the periphery of uh, South Asia, and over a period of time, by then, they had occupied a lot of reef parts of South, uh, part of India. The revolt of 1857, the Indians called it the first war of independence, but the British called it the revolt, was led by Muslim kings and monarchs, and including the last uh, Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah, very weakened one. And it was a very ruthless conflict between the two. Both sides engaged in brutal killings. Even today, remnants of it exist in cities like Lucknow, if you visit. And at the end, the British suppressed the revolt. And not only they suppressed, but they took away the privileges of the Muslim elite, Muslim rulers. Put them, many of them, including the Bahadur Shah, uh, exiled him to Burma, 
and they took away all those privileges, conferred some of them to Hindu upper caste elite. So and this is the context in which the decline of Muslims in South Asia occurs. This often people ignore. That's one of the reasons why the resurrected Muslim elite wanted to gain a separate homeland. And that's where Jinnah, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, come into play. Muhammad Ali Jinnah expected the partition will be a co-equal affair. They will get all of Punjab, they will get all of Bengal, Kashmir, and that it will be a, a co-equal state. But in the end, they did not. Both sides were divided. Both states were divided because of the population concentrations. So he called a moth-eaten Pakistan. And that is where some of the biggest um, difficulties of the status competition uh, comes from. And so since then, Kashmir conflict uh, erupts. And the expectation was that it will go to Pakistan. But today it is in a whole different uh, ballgame. And I can talk more about it later on if you want to. So it has been a period of uh, intense uh, 66 years of rivalry, not purely because of some military reasons alone, but it is the desire to maintain co-equality with this larger uh, uh, country or entity that Pakistan is striving for. It was able to do that during the Cold War, partly because the Western world treated India and Pakistan as equals, hyphenated them. After the end of the Cold War, that has changed. Today, India is a, considered as a rising power. The US is actually putting Afpak as the equals. This has created tremendous difficulties for the Pakistani elite because they thought they can maintain this through different policies. That's one of the reasons why they are acquiring a lot more nuclear weapons than is needed to acquire uh, deterrence. So these are some of the ideas, and the book describes a lot more ideas. And I have quite a bit of quotations, citations, where these ideas come from, the historical evolution of it. But one idea that uh, is very interesting to look at is the notion of strategic depth. That also is drawn from the British uh, colonial idea. Britain kept, as you know, Afghanistan as a buffer. And they wanted to keep that as uh, to prevent a, a Russian uh, invasion of the subcontinent. Now, keeping Afghanistan as a strategic depth it may not be purely for the fear of India pushing the Pakistani army and keeping this as an, a place to hide, because in the nuclear context that is a rather uh, unthinkable situation. It may also to keep the Pashtuns uniting, reuniting to demand the Pashtunistan, which is one of their biggest demands in the past. So these are some of the ideas, deep-rooted ideas. When do ideas change? These two mechanisms in the contemporary world, countries have gone through changes. One was through internal pressure, an internationally oriented middle class, a civil society, a business class, and political parties that have the ideas and the willingness to stand firm when pressured from uh, well-entrenched forces. The civil society should not waffle. They should be willing to fight. And that is a big issue in the Pakistani context. Pressures for changes cannot come from outside. If you look at some of the countries that have gone through changes, the United States will <coughs> play a big role. Contrast the US approach toward Korea and Taiwan in the 60s and 70s. This USA aid demanded structural change 
and economic integration of these countries to the world market. The IMF and the World Bank occasionally made demands on Pakistan and attached some conditions for loan disbursement, but not strong enough. And China and Saudi Arabia are not going to push for Pakistan to change in a big way. So the two twin forces of change are missing. And there are consequences of the rivalry I just mentioned. Obviously, uh, one has to look at some comparative cases in order to get a better sense of what is going on in Pakistan. Of course, these cases I discuss are different in some ways, but there are some similarities. I look at two Muslim majority states, Turkey and Egypt, actually three Muslim majority states, and Indonesia, and two non-Muslim states, South Korea and Taiwan. South Korea and Taiwan are most interesting for my analysis here. They show that countries facing existential challenges can also face that through a developmental state approach and both became democracies in the 1990s. Obviously, they had several uh, structural conditions that were in their favor. The Japanese colonialism, despite all its brutality, was more developmental than British colonialism. They provided a lot of changes. They changed the land tenure system and brought in education, technical education up to a point, and created a kind of bureaucrat bureaucratic setup. And so Korea and Taiwan also had to look up to Japan as a model. And despite all that, Korea, as I mentioned, was poorer than Pakistan in the 1950s. Korean leaders would, uh, or planners would go to Karachi to figure out how to run a city. Today, we can think, hopefully, Pakistani bureaucrats are visiting Seoul to figure out how to run a city. Like both these countries, uh, unlike Pakistan, these two countries used their alliance relationship with the great power patron to market access and economic reforms. They adopted what you call a developmental state approach, whereas Pakistan remained a pure national security state. Doesn't mean that they haven't uh, gotten rid of their conflicts. They have intense conflicts, as you know. What led them to do that? The elite realized that if they do not modernize, Popular discontent will affect their defense. This is a big difference here. A bit, bit like Bismarck saying, <coughs> we need to educate our soldiers, give them kind of uh, uh, basic uh, minimum to fight big wars. So welfare state. Here, that is not an issue. The Japanese bureaucracy, of course, helped in changing these three conditions of uh, colonialism. But the US also helped for them to change. The two big wars, the Korean War, for instance, Japan benefited from that. Um, the Vietnam War, uh, the other two states benefited. Whereas in Pakistan's case, uh, the, Afghan, the Cold War benefited a little bit, but Afghan wars have not, other than by just getting money. So Pakistan, except during the Ayub Khan period, did not pursue developmental or training state approach. These two countries adopted what you call export or die, a mantra that they still keep. They are indeed innovating and making changes. You must be watching the Samsung TVs instead of Sony TV. Uh, and I must say I'm very impressed with the technology that they come up with every year. So Turkey is another case I look at. 
We have also had the military uh, deep control, coups. Of course, this is Ataturk's uh, military in some sense. They were following repressive policies uh, with respect to Kurdish separatists. And obviously to protect the so-called secular state, they had a rivalry with Greece over Cyprus. But Turkey maintained this national security state while maintaining what you call a semi-developmental state. And as a result, Turkey grew economically 4% uh, to 4.6% in the 60s. And since the 1990s, Turkey had made Im immense progress in the economic arena. Turkey also had land reforms, uh, which helped them a lot. So it followed a partial developmental state approach, uh, first in import substitution policies, then export-oriented policies. Turkey is now liberalized, as you know. But unfortunately, democratization took place in Turkey with a single party now trying to press that democratic freedom. And it's only uh, time can say where Turkey is heading. Indonesia is definitely one of the most fascinating cases where the military ruled <coughs> for so long. And they also had a peculiar approach toward the national security state, even though they didn't have many external conflicts. Quite a few internal conflicts, Aceh, for instance. External intervention, East Timor. But this country followed a very interesting uh, uh, track, despite the immense corruption you see there. It put a lot of money into education, 6% of the GDP or so. Pakistan, less than 2%. India, less than 2%. In the Indian case, 1% went into technical education. And you see many of your engineering professors here and the other places coming out of that particular institutions India has created under Nehru, Indian Institute of Technologies. 1% is not enough to uplift masses of uh, illiterate people. Even today, spending on education is increasing, in India especially, but not sufficient. If East Asian miracle took place, it is because they spend 6, 7, 8% of the GDP for education. There's a fascinating book by Myron Wiener called The Child and State in India. And I suggest people should read that, policymakers especially, and shows the difference between uh, countries that put money into education and countries that did not. So in Pakistan's case, education is the biggest challenge even today. Must have, much of the school, as you know, system is controlled by madrasas or supported by outsiders like Saudis. And the state is not able to provide a decent liberal education. Worst of all is the absence of technical schools. You need a lot of technical schools, it's something India has done actually much better, to produce the kind of talent pool in order to make use of this enormous youth population this country is producing, and it will have. So these are things that the elite has not focused enough. Indonesia followed what you call a mild secular strategy. And it is indeed a fascinating story of how the military tried to control, <coughs> withdrew, and the civilians stood fast to make sure the military does not get back to power. I'm not saying everything is perfect in the Indonesian case, but it is a very interesting case of how democracy can be achieved in a Muslim majority state, and how even limited tolerance of other groups are practiced in Indonesia. It is a, a, a lot of variation from Pakistan, but the following of what you call pro-growth policy is also very important here. Of course, they have neighbors who are engaged in trade that help a lot. 
Since the Bali bombings in 2002, a strong policy of suppressing terrorism, unlike Pakistan. And so uh, by 2007, the Freedom House declared Indonesia fully free. Strong will leaders, civilian leaders, they support a civil society essential to achieve this goal. And it's going through some elections now, if you watch that scene. It's very interesting to see how rapidly it became a true democracy for a period of time. Egypt is my other case of geostrategic curse affecting in a big way. It is also a big recipient of US aid. It has no land reforms, has military in control, was after a revolution uh, of a short period. Now it is back to military control. Number of similarities, number of differences. But Egypt followed moderate foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel, and that was a condition for aid. And today, Egypt is going through perhaps the same pathologies as uh, Pakistan. And again, one has to wait and see. The next few minutes, I'll just wrap it up by looking at uh, some general conclusions and their application today. I get a criticism from some folks who argue that Europe took 400 years to get where it is, with a lot of wars, of course. Pakistan had been in existence for only 66 years. Time is important. My argument in the book is that time is no guarantee that you get change, positive change. Time is compressed for modern states, unlike Europe. Many Latin American countries have been in existence for over 150 years. Many of them have not become stronger or wealthier. Whereas Korea, Taiwan, China, and even <coughs> India, and of course the ASEAN countries, became richer during a short period of time. China, within two decades after Deng Xiaoping initiated the reforms, made wonderful strides. Without those reforms, China would be a basket case. India, again, in two decades, of, it's not doing as well as it used to, but obviously it may change in the current, uh, the next election, and the government will do more economic focus rather than other kind of uh, attention-grabbing uh, activities. Contemporary security states, national security states, need to adopt a trading and developmental state approach to become stronger. This is where China, and actually an interesting case, China is a national security state, but it is also a trading state. And so, if you look at any state in the modern world, Israel, another state, intense national security focus, but it is also a trading state focusing on technology, etc. Large-scale war making that the European states engage in is no longer available as a mechanism for transformation. Playing with war making is a risky strategy Indeed, you can become an Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea, and North Korea, all pursue this strategy, and they have not done well. Pakistan has not benefited from war preparation because it has not been a developmental state. Pakistan has not allowed or encouraged its younger generation to globalize and benefit from economic liberalization, as has been the case of China to a limited extent India. They are not given the necessary education, especially in science and technology. Pakistan has therefore missed out the post-war, post-Cold War era economic boom, especially the benefits of globalization associated with greater international trade, investment, and mobility of workforce globally. None of the economic or political crisis 
that Pakistan faced has been strong enough to move the society into a different pathway. So I argue that major transformation is necessary in the way Pakistani elite and civil society and the expatriate community, by the way, have a role here to play, think of security and development. They cannot wait for all the territorial disputes to be settled and concessions made by their enemies, that is India and Afghanistan. They can do both simultaneously. Pakistan's key allies, the US, China, Saudi Arabia, all have a role here to play. The US need to look at long-term economic development of Pakistan and the region, Afghanistan included, Central Asia, rather than using this country for military security services and a transactional relationship. This short-term commitment is not enough. We need to think of a regional rapprochement, a regional economic integration policy, a connectivity-based policy. India definitely can help by not securitizing water disputes, repressive policies in Kashmir, and of course, opening up a lot more than what the Pakistanis do. Reciprocity is a big issue here, but I think India cannot wait for full reciprocity from Pakistan, given that they have very little to export. So China, another big player here. China relationship is China should have used this country like US did with Korea. But unfortunately, Chinese relations, at least until recently, have been based on military, economic part was secondary. Uh, they're building some infrastructure now, but still it is very much China keeps this as a balance of power coalition vis-a-vis -vis India. So weapons are transferred, uh, nuclear weapons are designed in the past, uh, materials, etc. But China has to develop this country and help build it up if at all it wants a proper balance of power to achieve. Let me conclude by arguing that Pakistani media and leading commentators are writing more on the need for economic approach and changing the dynamics. Official discourse reflects some rethinking, but it is very difficult to predict the trajectory of Pakistan. Pakistan's trajectory will be a very key determinant as to whether we get peace and stability for some two million South Asians and also for global community for years to come. So, that is all for I have for now, and uh, there's a lot more uh, in the book. There's considerable discussion in terms of historical. Every chapter has some historical discussion, which those who are not familiar with the South Asian context will also benefit, and to understand how uh, Pakistan became the way it did. Thank you very much for your... Do you want to take questions, or whatever you prefer? Why don't you uh, okay. uh, uh, try to uh, orient you? Please. Uh, uh, sir, thank you very much for your presentation. Please introduce yourself um, so I know who I'm talking about. Right, I'm Joe Stafford. I'm a um, former Foreign Service Officer with the State Department. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, Two-part question, if I may. Are you uh, concerned that Pakistan could become increasingly a failed state, un increasingly unable to perform the basic functions of any state, increasingly unable to serve as an effective partner for the United States? And what can the United States do? You had a couple of suggestions. Any further suggestions about what the United States should do to help prevent any further slide? 
toward becoming a failed state. Thank you. Could you repeat your question? Yes. The question is whether uh, the concern exists where Pakistan is going to increasingly become uh, more of a failed state, difficult to perform its uh, duties as a nation state, and what can the United States do to prevent the slide uh, happening there? What is noticeable is Pakistan is showing both sides. There's one side, there is a slide going on. On the other side, you had elections, and the Islamist parties did not win, you know, as it was feared. But uh, Pakistan has this increasing violence, which is one of the most disturbing things when you think about. Pakistan had violence before, but now it is not just confined to Waziristan and other places, or even Karachi. It is spreading to major parts of Pakistan which is partly uh, engineered by the homegrown Taliban and with their supportation outside. The Pakistani state has tried to negotiate with them, but just yesterday they broke off all that and bombings are going on. There's a lot of retribution back and forth. And in between those uh, media, you know, the greatest constituency thought could uh, stand up are being harassed, many of them are getting killed. So the civil society is divided, as you know, it's a, it's a small civil society. Political parties uh, sufficiently cooperating each other. Military is sufficiently cooperating each other. But none of this is, uh, you know, Pakistan had periods of peace or peaceful civil-military relations up to a point. So it is not going to be easy to predict uh, where that will go. My sense is that Pakistan is not going to collapse as many people fear. It has lopsided capacity. That's a pretty good, strong military. And this military is indeed uh, never going to let Pakistan, the Taliban, control completely. I'm talking about the internal forces. So there will be a lot of violence, um, but I'm worried about their connection to the Afghan Taliban. If they're going to play the supporting game to Afghan Taliban, which all indications are that they are going to, uh, we are going to get a repetition of 1990s may not be exactly the same thing, given that the Afghan government has a little bit, a little bit more strength than international support. And what will the Indians, what will the Russians, the, the Americans do in that context? So this um, playing geopolitical games uh, is what I am questioning in this whole book. It beyond one's capacity, ambitious agenda, and it has uh, a lot of problems. And that is very important. At the same time, Pakistan has to start somewhere, which is education institutions, technical institutions, engineering colleges. And we need a regional approach to problem solving there. We need Pakistan, we need Afghanistan, we need India, we need Central Asian states, we need Iran, Saudi Arabia, China, to come to some kind of an agreement or understanding, rapprochement, how to develop this place economically. In other words, one of the biggest areas where they can do that is through energy security. We talk about the gas pipelines coming from Central Asia to India, via Pakistan, Afghanistan, from Iran. Why not make energy as a source of cooperation? As the Europeans did, you know, the European Union started from the energy cooperation. Hydropower. India has now, is now building a few dams, and the Pakistanis are very upset on the Indus and its tributaries. Now, you cannot stop dam building because the water is going on in the monsoon, going to the Arabian Sea, and the Pakistan get flooded, India get flooded. So there is a way to keep the water, but turning it into a source of cooperation. Now, I have a proposal that turn it into a hydropower, 
for Pakistan, India should export hydropower to Pakistan at a concessional rate and use the money for the development of Kashmir. So India and Pakistan have an agreement called industry treaty. It's been performing reasonably well. So they have to have a new understanding of this sort of uh, cooperation. And the US definitely has to think beyond this transactional relationship. It is not helping giving money them to allow US trucks to pass through or whatever services they provide. It is not giving them a sense of uh, equalness, equality. If you receive aid and you expect behavior to be uh, followed, and the Pakistanis don't follow exactly what the US wants, it creates a lot of bitterness. Whereas if you have a trade relationship, it would be a lot more different case. That's why I, I think that it is time to look at the economic aspects of this relationship. What else the US can do? A lot of things that they can do, one of the important Pakistan's traditional exports, which is now uh, taken over by uh, Bangladesh, I believe. And areas where they can help create a business community there, a civil society there, that want peace. And of course, investment in school reforms, curriculum reforms, a lot of things can be done. You need a package, you need a big picture strategy for this region. Now, it's not a Marshall Plan type, but of course, Marshall Plan uh, succeeded because you had takers that are willing to follow the, the policies that were proposed. Here, you need something different, but clearly, who will do it? And the US has a role to play in bringing people together rather than letting it slide it again into what you saw in 1990s. And uh, consequently, we will also suffer, you know, at the end, uh, if it becomes another zone of uh, intense terrorist activity. Thank you. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm part of the government program here at um, My question is, do you feel that these institutional changes that you're um, suggesting are endogenous and possible, or is this something that's going to take some kind of exogenous shock? Because it's, I can't get a read on it. This is something that the Pakistani government is actually capable of doing. It'll take some kind of outside force to actually get the changes happening. Well, that is uh, the question is whether changes will happen because of internal shocks or external shocks. And uh, in, in this case, the internal shocks have been few, but none of them have been sufficient, or others did not allow uh, them to slide into a situation where they had to reform. So whenever Pakistan faces an economic crisis, IMF comes there suddenly with 6.57. You know, the kind of aid, it patches up, it maintains, you know, it's kind of giving aspirin to a, a, someone with serious medical condition. And so the headache is gone for a little while, but the headache comes back. So this is, the, this is the big challenge. The fear is Pakistan is not any other country. We cannot let it collapse because of nuclear weapons, because of a whole host of issues. But I think the elite has to sometimes imitate ideas. They can take ideas from outsiders. Here, I think the elite has to understand, learn, what is needed? They're stuck with the kind of ideas that I talked about, then they are not going to change. External shocks, right now we are going through a big external shock with respect to Afghan transition, whether it is a positive shock or a negative shock. The other shock is, of course, war. 71 war was a major decisive or semi-decisive defeat. Did not cause any positive change. Pakistan became a more militant state. 
because the whole notion of strategic parity still continues. So I think it could be both, but it may be a slow process and the realization by looking at other cases where change took place. The military ruled for a while and then they gave it up. Now Burma, Myanmar is going through that process. Very interesting what, they, they didn't have many shocks. Of course the shock was the fear of the China will take over or whatever. But uh, clearly here the external supporters of Pakistan have to play a role by encouraging them at least some reforms. Saudi Arabia should start engineering colleges, not madrasas. China should start uh, special economic zones, not latest military gadget. So US, maybe some encouragement to think about achieving security through other means than coercive means, internally too, counterterrorism, for instance. So I do see this as a slow process, but somewhere it has to start. And uh, the question is, uh, who is going to do that? And we need more ideas, creative ideas, and debates without getting the kind of defensive nationalism that you often hear whenever somebody says something, you know, immediately the reaction is, oh, we have too many threats. Countries have threats. Countries face them differently than Pakistan does. Uh, hello, my name is Russell. I worked in uh, Afghanistan for several years. Oh. As, uh, as this situation starts to develop, are we going to see more Pakistani incursions into Afghanistan as they start chasing the Pakistani government? The question is whether as the situation develops in uh, Afghanistan, whether Pakistan will do more uh, incursions or Pakistan support the Taliban more intensely. I'm seeing indications of both, to be honest. I've seen an interesting report yesterday in one of the Afghan papers suggesting that Pakistan is building a few schools, building a few hospitals, and starting to play the thing India did. You know, India has been building their parliament and all that. I would think encourage that. Pakistan should do more economic development of Afghanistan, of course. They don't have much money, but at least in collaboration with China or Saudi Arabia or whatever. Let a competition develop between India and Pakistan for the economic development of Afghanistan. This is what should be encouraged. Instead, the idea is that uh, ISI still would like to have control over the Taliban, strategic depth, you know, the dated concept of 19th century. And we really need to encourage the Pakistanis to show that a weakened Afghanistan is going to hurt them. Pakistan will never get out of its quagmire until Afghanistan stabilizes. It cannot keep that country poor and developed forever. Afghanistan deserves to be an independent state. And this whole idea of keeping it as a vassal state is a British era concept. It must go. Of course, Afghans have to be careful how they deal with Pakistan too. So they really need to reorient themselves and create a condition why it doesn't become the source of the next rivalry. And so I have a feeling that the election may produce some kind of a positive outcome in Afghanistan, but Pakistan is needed. If Pakistan does not support the Taliban, the Taliban will not gain much strength. It is Pakistan's support that caused that kind of powerful Taliban. So I don't know. I think this is where the US has to engage the Pakistanis. Why is the US so afraid? We just got a famous book uh, out there by this uh, New York Times correspondent uh, talking about the, the wrong enemy. And <laughs> we know for sure what's going on there. 
it's time to confront them. Look, it's in your interest, self-interest that Afghanistan does not slide into what it did. And the US will otherwise will go back, will end up going back there, taking casualties and the young people who should be building this country, you know? So it is a very tragic mindset problem here. And I think we need to think of a strategy to encourage them. I think the US is very afraid of Pakistan when it comes to these negotiations. We cannot have this short-term tactical discussion. Long-term, you know, let us engage them one by one. What exactly you want in Afghanistan? And time to stop. They will deny immediately, yeah, we have nothing to do with it. That is not going to help. You really need an open mind discussion about stabilizing Afghanistan, stabilizing that part of Pakistan that is suffering. So we're nearing the end of our time. Dr. Paul, thanks very much for your comments. Um, Frank Kistner, a former member of the United States military, but you use the phrase uh, Hindu fundamentalists uh, mm -hmm. who you think will uh, come to power in India. Could you explain a little bit more or talk a little bit about the possible relationship that uh, will then develop between India and Pakistan? The question is whether the uh, elections that are going on in India, the results will be out on May 16th, will produce a BJP <coughs> or a Hindu, it's not a Hindu uh, uh, right-wing party. It has an element in it that is called the RSS, that is fundamentalist. The, the Hindu party is not necessarily, it's kind of a Republican party, it is a Christians controlled Republican party to some extent. But it has uh, a 10% or so that are quite a bit religious. They want to create a, what do you call a Hindu, a get rid of Indian secularism, etc. But they, they were in power before. Remember, Adal Bihari Vajpayee was Prime Minister when, in fact, he went to Lahore in the China Agreement with Pakistan. They are also the ones who tested the nuclear weapons, and there is a lot of national security conflict during that period, intense crisis. But the, the election today is fought over uh, anti-incumbency. Congress party did not do well with respect to, after the first round, five years they were good. After that, the growth has declined. India is growing now 5% or less. A lot of corruption, a lot of scandals. So people are fed up with this uh, particular uh, Sonia Gandhi and, his, uh, and her son and company. And uh, so a leader from Gujarat, a gentleman called Narendra Modi, uh, he has shown that Gujarat has grown. Gujarat is a uh, Western Indian state has grown very well in, in raw economic terms, and uh, he has a kind of managerial style. He is a BJP uh, player, a supporter, and uh, to some extent a fundamentalist, but he's also a pragmatist. So there is an element of both in him uh, in terms of economic activities. His biggest uh, blemish uh, is that he did not prevent, uh, there was a, a big uh, anti Muslim riot. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, he was uh, uh, at least he was acquitted from direct uh, involvement, but as chief minister of the state, he did not protect the Muslim minority. So thousand odd people were killed, and uh, very ruthless uh, situation. So this is where people are very afraid. What is this man going to do? Uh, I see in him, if he gets a full majority, he may be tempted to do textbook changing, textbook history books like Pakistan did with the rest. A lot of uh, ratcheting up for a time period. But my sense is that they are realizing that uh, BJP could become a true alternate party 
to the Congress Party or other groups, and that they have an opportunity. If they are not taken over by that 10% I mentioned, that include some deep fundamentalists. But they also have a track record of business and development, and they are pro-capitalist, by the way. <laughs> Very much interested in developing relations with Israel, United States, China, not China, Japan, etc. So if they have the right people, they may push forward a reform agenda, more economic growth, but they may also do some nasty things in between, like changing the secular credentials of Indian constitution, etc. But I think we have to give them a little bit of time, see what they're going to come up with. My sense is it won't be as bad as we think, because a lot of constraints, they cannot just uh, uh, do everything they want. Partly they may need support from different regional parties to have a majority. That's actually a better scenario, that they are restrained by regional parties rather than giving them a total majority. Their approach to the to conclude, approach to peace to Pakistan is changing as day by day. They'll make a lot of statements. Kashmir is not going to be uh, negotiated and all that, that stuff. But there are those who believe that they may be the one to be able to achieve peace. Just like the Israeli right-wing party was able to achieve peace with Egypt, uh, given that the Congress party was not uh, able to achieve so far. So I don't know. I don't want to go into too much uh, conjectures. I want to give them a little bit of time. Maybe by next year, this time, you will know. Thank you so much for your Thank you. wonderful yeah. questions. Oh, just, just, just one question, Mr. Paul, th Dr. Paul. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is, how do you see the role within Pakistan of the government and elite in terms of taxation and income distribution and education of the people that should, in the long run, help facilitate the process <coughs> that you're mentioning? Well, this is a tragedy. When you are a, a, a kind of a agrarian society, the poor doesn't have the power to fight or demand reform. Happening in India too, to some extent. The poor votes, though, is surprisingly, if you go to some of the recent elections going on, even in Pakistan, there's 60, 62% uh, voting uh, habit. The poor is the least organized and the least uh, able to make the transformation. So those transformations are actually top down, many of these cases. Of course, in India, there are these uh, caste based, uh, you know, groups are doing things in, in regions. But so I think it is elite that has to change. This is my biggest argument. Uh, in this case, don't expect the poor to start a revolution. They don't have the capacity. Even the middle class. No. It's a very divided middle class. Some of them are supporters of Islamic fundamentalism. So the change has to come through top down, elite. Modernizers who want to change, and uh, hopefully they will do, realizing that 66 years is a long period of time. They have tried one path, it hasn't succeeded. Now it's time to look at alternate models. So I find this a uh, 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 wonderfully depressing thing to end <laughs> a terrific talk. Lots of great information and insight into Pakistan and its uh, trajectory and history and where it to here. So let's uh, thank TV. TV will be signing some copies of his book outside. I have some flyers here too, and then he's